Good morning. You guys doing all right this morning? Well, last week was VBS, and so we got to declare the good news of Jesus Christ to a whole bunch of kids. We told them that Jesus is holy, he's trustworthy, he's loving, that Jesus is worth following, and that he is for everyone. It was truly a great week. The volunteers did a fantastic job. Now, if you are sitting next to somebody who helped with VBS last week, will you just do them a favor throughout our time together and just give them, give them one of those nudges like, hey, stay awake, stay awake, you can do this. It was a long, difficult week, but man, it was really, really, really good. Uh, we had over 65 different kids come to VBS, so that means that 65 different kids got to hear the name of Jesus Christ. Yes. <clears throat> uh, we raised $1,500 towards our mission offering, um, and this year all of that offering is going to a nonprofit called the Community Crisis Team. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Community Crisis Team, it's a fairly new nonprofit here in town that was started up by Vic Gorman, and it helps people who hit hard times. And so uh, they might they might put somebody in a hotel room or replace an air conditioner or a refrigerator or, or whatever it might be. And the goal is to meet these physical demands in order to then meet spiritual needs, right? And so Vic gets in there, him and his team, they help out, and then they talk to them. They get to know them. They pray with them. They invite them to church. And, and it's, it's truly a good thing. And I'm very excited to see how the Lord is going to use that team moving forward. And when I called him and I said, hey, we've got $1,500 with your name on it, he started crying and he told me that they have been dipping into their own pockets, paying for groceries out of their own pockets, paying for hotel rooms out of their own pockets. And so he's very thankful for this money and I'm excited because he's going to give us a detailed report for how every penny is spent and the good that it does in our own community. So thank you to all of those who brought money for our missions offering for BBS. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, go ahead and open up to Psalm 23 once again. Uh, last week, we started a series called Between Two Trees. And I talked about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and then the trees of life that are in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22, and how we have this theological concept of God's goodness. That over here, we know that God is good. And then over here, we believe that one day we will experience that goodness, but it's probably not until the day we die and we're with him in paradise. And it's in this in-between, it's in this life that's lived between these two trees that we, that we struggle. We think, can I have life right now? Is God's goodness available to us right now? now, in this moment, today. And honestly, it's hard to come to terms with the reality of God's goodness when our lives are simply not how we would have written them. Sometimes we can think if the author of life is good, well, then why did I lose my job? Why did I have a falling out with my friends or with my family? And we just say, why? Why, oh Lord, why is my life the way that it is? How can we possibly believe in God's goodness when life feels so bad? And I told you that's what Psalm 23 is all about. 
It's the story of a person who asked the exact same questions. The story of a person who has been through immeasurable pain and hardship and loneliness. And yet, he learned what it's like to experience God's goodness in the in-between. Remember that King David was on the run. He ruined his own life and he had nobody else to blame. His family betrayed him. He was heartbroken. He was disappointed and his enemies surrounded him. And even still, he says, I shall not want. I will fear no evil. Surely your goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. And this is not David being poetic. This is David bearing down and saying that the truth of God will control my emotions. That my circumstances do not have that kind of power. That I might be in a season of waiting, I might be in a season of suffering and hardship, but I know, I know that the Lord is my shepherd and that he is right here with me and that changes everything. And so today we're going to focus once again on God's goodness. But we're going to explore God's slow goodness. We know that He is good, but His goodness can sometimes feel like it's moving very, very slowly. <clears throat> In Scripture, we see that Abraham waited 25 years for the slow goodness of God between the promise of a child and the birth of Isaac. <clears throat> the Israelite people they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years before the slow goodness of God delivered them through Moses. And even still, the slow goodness of God led them in the wilderness for 40 years. Apostle Paul was promised he would preach to the Gentiles, but it took the slow goodness of God years before Paul was ready to go and preach. Even King David himself was anointed by Samuel to become king over Israel, and yet the slow goodness of God saw him running and hiding in caves for seven years, and it was 14 years before he became king over Israel. God is always good, but sometimes his goodness seems very slow. It's the last verse of Psalm 23 that says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You see, our shepherd is behind us. He is following us. He is pursuing us. He is even harassing us with his goodness. And we know that the call of Jesus is a call to follow him. But equally important is that God follows us. It was in the first moments of the in-between when Adam and Eve sinned and they were kicked out of the garden that God pursued them, that God went looking for them, and he called out to them. God pursues us. He has pursued us from the very beginning. He comes behind us and he says, goodness and mercy shall follow you. And so make no mistake, God's goodness is always there. It is always at work in all things. Nothing is outside of his control and not one moment of your life is wasted. Not one moment of your life is without purpose. So let me ask you, are you, like David, absolutely confident that even in the most challenging chapters of your life, 
God's goodness and mercy are following you. We're going to look at Psalm 23 again, but this time from a bird's eye view. And then we're going to lay the filter of Psalm 23 over the life of a guy named Joseph out of the book of Genesis. And we're going to see how Joseph experienced the truths of Psalm 23. Now remember, last week I challenged you guys to memorize Psalm 23. So you can say it along with me if you've got it. Uh, And we're doing it in the ESV, Brent, okay? It's in the ESV, buddy. (laughs) He said he memorized it a long time ago in the KJV, and that's just how it is. So Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I am impressed. Good job. Again, just a brief overview. I told you that sheep only lie down in a green pasture if they're full, if they are satisfied. And in Philip Keller, in his excellent book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, he says that sheep can only lie down if four things have been satisfied. Those four things are hunger, fear, conflict with other sheep, and pests. Hunger, fear, conflict with other sheep, and pests. And so first, when you're hungry, you cannot be at rest, right? Apparently, even sheep need that midnight snack, and I get that. Second, when you're afraid, you cannot find rest. And I think that some of us are probably more like sheep than others, and those little bumps in the night, you know, those little noises that you just can't explain, they keep you awake, Because you're afraid maybe something's going on. Maybe somebody's breaking in. But I think even more so when you're afraid of the future or afraid of the unknown or you're afraid that maybe you've made some big mistake, well, then you just can't find rest. And so sheep won't lie down if they're hungry. They won't lie down if they're afraid. And they won't lie down if there's conflict with other sheep. Now, I don't know about you, But if I feel wronged or if I feel mistreated, then I'll just stay awake, lying in bed, thinking about what I could have said or should have said or what I I wish I would have said, what I might say in the future. I call these shadow wars. I call these shadow wars. When I'm not actually interacting with a real person, I'm just interacting with my imagination of a person. I'm just interacting with the shadow of another person. I call these shadow wars. Because you can say whatever you want to to a person's shadow. They're not going to make a good point in return. And I can say whatever I want to to your shadow without you becoming offended. But you can't find rest when you're in the middle of a shadow war. And then lastly, sheep will not lie down when there are pests around, when they're being bitten by fleas or or mice or something is just messing with them. 
We should think of these things as these little anxieties that keep you awake at night. Like the, the big interview coming up, or the monthly budget that's being stretched, or the huge lie that your kids are telling, or that test that you did not study for. And David says that I have learned to put the weight of my hunger and my fear and my interpersonal conflict and my anxieties onto God, and I trust Him. I trust Him to take care of all of those things and to provide all that I need so that I can lie down, so that I can rest, and so that I can just enjoy being in His presence. And this goes right along with verse 5 where it says, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I told you last week that God loves tables. He just does. He loves tables because they represent food and fellowship and security. He loves tables because there's great peace and satisfaction at a table. And David says that even in the presence of his enemies, he can have all of those things. And not only that, but he can experience freedom from all of the things that steal your rest and steal your peace. He can have freedom from hunger and fear and conflict and even anxiety. I wonder, have you ever tried to eat at the table of somebody that you're currently in a big fight with? It just feels impossible. The food doesn't taste good. It it wouldn't matter if Gordon Ramsay cooked that meal. I'm not having a good meal. Because I'm in the middle of an argument. I'm in the middle of a fight. But when you're with your shepherd, when you are with your shepherd, there is peace and there is rest that overcomes you and it comforts you to the point where you can be satisfied and you can be fulfilled. And then David says, my cup overflows. Have you ever known these people who are going through just an incredibly difficult season of life, and yet they are the ones who are ministering to other people, my mind immediately goes to Terry Sykes. For those of you who never had an opportunity to meet Terry, uh, he used to be an elder here. Several years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, but he fit so many years of life into those last few months. He was always smiling, always greeting people, telling everybody that was around him about the good news of Jesus Christ, whether you were a chemo nurse or a stranger at Walmart or whether you were just walking an aisle in the church, he was going to tell you about his hope in Jesus. He was never discouraged. He never threw a pity party. He never made the conversation all about himself. He ministered to other people rather than being ministered to It was truly a remarkable thing to witness, and I'll forever be grateful that I got to be friends with Terry Sykes. You see, Terry's cup was overflowing. Even in the midst of his great trial, Terry's cup was overflowing because he knew, he knew that his shepherd was with him, and that's all he needed. He could say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want Terry could say, I will fear no evil for you, O God. You are with me. And so we got to see the realities of Psalm 23 play out in Terry's life. And now I want to see them also play out in the life of a guy named Joseph. 
My plan is to give you just a report over Joseph's entire life, which spans 14 chapters in the book of Genesis. And I'll just walk you through the story. You can turn there if you want. It starts in Genesis 37, or you can just stay right there in Psalm 23, if you would rather. You see, Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham. So it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. He is the 11th out of 12 boys, and out of all of the 12, Joseph is his daddy's favorite. All of his brothers knew this, of course, and they didn't like it. Why would they like it? They resented Joseph, especially when Joseph received the coat of many colors. So... Jacob, he just wasn't trying to hide anything about who was his favorite. It wasn't like this coat was like the other coats. It wasn't a work coat. This was an elaborate piece of art that was meant to stand out. It was meant to say, I am high class. I am nobility. I am daddy's favorite. I don't go to work like all of you other people, all of my brothers, because I'm special. Joseph didn't deserve the coat of many colors. If anybody deserved it, it would have been the oldest of the 12, not Joseph. But remember, at this point, Joseph, he's just a teenager. He's about 17 years old. He's got his coat on, and he starts having these dreams. He's got two different dreams, and in both of the dreams, his 11 brothers are going to bow down to Joseph. He's 17, and he has the gall to tell his brothers all about his dreams. And Scripture says that his brothers resented him all the more because of it. Now, there are many parts of Joseph's life that I would tell you, you should be like Joseph. You should emulate Joseph. But if you have a dream where your brothers and sisters or where your friends are bowing down to you, maybe just keep that to yourself. I'm, I'm just a little advice. He doesn't. He tells his brothers. And then one day, all of his brothers are working out in the pasture while Joseph is at home wearing his coat. And Jacob, daddy, goes to Joseph and he says, hey, will you go check in on all the older brothers? And you know that Joseph has never been out in the field working because he gets out there and he has to just ask some random person like, hey, where, where are they? I don't, I don't even know how to find them. And then there's the familiar part of the story where Joseph finally finds them and they're like, oh yeah, we are going to bow down to you? No, I don't think so. And so they come up with this plan to kill him. Now thankfully, Reuben, the oldest, he says, well, let's not kill him. Let's just, there's a pit right here. You guys want to just throw him in a pit? We can just kind of leave him there. He's secretly going to try to restore Joseph to the family. So they go ahead and they throw him in the pit. And then Judah, another one of the brothers, he sees some traveling merchants coming around and he comes up with the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. Now, of course, they they have to go back home at some point. And so they're going to have to tell their dad at some point what happened to Joseph. And so they come up with this story. And they dip Joseph's coat into some goat blood and they claim that a wild animal must have killed Joseph. He's never been out here before. He he didn't know what he was doing and he he got in some, some wrestling match and he lost. Now meanwhile, in reality, Joseph is headed to Egypt to live in the house of a guy named Potiphar. 
And Potiphar, he just so happens to be an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now it's at this point, we're about two chapters into the life of Joseph, and we see an important phrase that will come up several times. In Genesis 39 verse 2, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And all God's people said, nope. <laughs> nah. The Lord was with Joseph? Are you kidding me? Really? Really? You expect me to believe that the Lord was with Joseph at this point? I think about it. The punishment does not fit the crime. If anything, they should have sold Jacob into slavery. It wasn't Joseph's fault that he was daddy's favorite. Like, sure, he was annoying about it, but he's 17. He probably should have kept those dreams to himself, but to be thrown into a pit and to be sold into slavery? I mean, if God was with him, shouldn't God have intervened? Seems a little rough. And yet Joseph was confident that God was with him. Even in those things, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You see, Psalm 23 would have been written long after Joseph. And yet the realities of the psalm are evident in the life of Joseph. Joseph trusts in the Lord. Even in the middle of his hardship and trial, he is trusting in the Lord. And it is that trust that enables him to serve faithfully in Potiphar's house. It is because he knows that the Lord is with him, that he can go into slavery, he can become successful. And of course, Potiphar notices this and promotes Joseph. And the only reason Joseph had the ability to do all of that and to remain faithful to Potiphar and to the Lord is because he knew that the Lord was with him. What if Joseph would have had a different attitude? What if he said, I'm in the shadow of death and God has forsaken me. It's just me. I'm all alone. There's no hope in a pit. There's no hope for me. I might as well just take matters into my own hands. Oh, how his story would have turned out differently. But Joseph knew that even in slavery, even in Potiphar's house, that his shepherd was with him. And so he continues to be faithful and he continues to feast on the presence of the Lord. And then the story gets even more dicey. You see, it's Potiphar's wife. We don't, we don't know her name, just Potiphar's wife. She looks at Joseph and she says, man, you are attractive. Your body, your face, like everything, you're the whole package. And so one day, when Potiphar's gone, she starts making these advances on Joseph, and she says, lie with me, right? Apparently, there's no need to be bashful. She just straight up says it. Joseph, he won't do it. He has great respect for Potiphar. He has even greater respect for God, and so he denies her, and he tries to get away. But then one day, there's nobody else in the house, nobody else around, so she tries again, and in an effort to get away, Joseph's garment tears, and she's left alone just holding his cloak. When Potiphar gets home, 
she lies about the whole thing and she says that Joseph tried to rape her. Now Potiphar, just like any other husband, he believes his wife. And so he throws Joseph into prison. And then we come across our phrase again. Genesis 39 verse 21 says, but the Lord was with Joseph. And again, I say, really? Joseph is the victim of sexual assault. And he is the one who is punished. He's the one who's condemned. He's the one who's thrown into prison. And yet the predator goes free. How can you say that God is with you in a time like that? But Scripture doesn't apologize. Scripture doesn't make any caveats. It simply says the truth. The Lord was with him. Remember, the goodness of God is often much slower than we prefer. And it's in the waiting that Joseph feasted upon the presence of the Lord. That when everything was falling apart, it would have been easy to say, Where are you, God? You must have abandoned me. I'm all alone. And it's in that season of life that Joseph feasted upon the presence of the Lord. You see, there's a significant change in Psalm 23 right there in the middle of verse 4. David says, He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And then in verse 4, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. David goes from talking about God in front of us to talking to God while we happen to be in the room. You see, there comes a point in everyone's life, but especially if you were raised in church, or especially if you're a little bit more academic, there comes a point in everybody's life that you are no longer talking about God, you're no longer talking theology, but instead, you're just talking with God. And you're just communing with God. You're just with him. And that's what happens to David. It becomes less of a conversation about God and more of a conversation with God. And then back to Joseph. It says that while he's in prison, he's put in charge of all of the other prisoners and that the guard doesn't ever have to worry about what's happening. The keeper of the prison pays no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord caused it to succeed. And this is a motif in Joseph's life. that The Lord was with him, and then Joseph succeeds. So again, let me ask you, how would your attitude in life change if you believed that in all things God was with you? Joseph is wrongly in prison. And yet he walks with integrity. He is wrongly in prison, and yet his spirits are lifted high. 
His shoulders are not drooping because he believes that God is with him. And wherever he is, even in the presence of his enemies, a table has been prepared just for Joseph. And after several years in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker are thrown into prison. And they both have these, have these dreams, and Joseph interprets them. To the cupbearer, he says that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and you will be restored. And to the baker, he says that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Like apparently, Joseph just has a way with words. But the interpretations, they prove true. The cupbearer is indeed restored and the baker is hanged. And so when the cupbearer is being restored, when he's finally getting out of prison, Joseph says, hey, hey, don't forget about me. When you get out of here, you remember me. And this guy promises and he's like, oh yeah, for sure. And then he gets out of there and he immediately forgets about Joseph. Joseph then spends two more years in prison. And then Pharaoh himself has a dream. Nobody can interpret this dream. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer is like, oh yeah. So there's this guy that I know. Uh, his name's Joseph. He's in prison. Uh, he can probably interpret your dream. So they go and get Joseph. And Joseph says, well, I don't interpret dreams, but God gives me interpretations. He's giving credit to God, even though he's been completely forgotten. So he goes on, he interprets the dream about the seven fat cows and the seven scrawny cows, and he says that there is a famine coming, so make sure to use the seven years of plenty to get ready for the seven years of hunger. And so he sets up Egypt to be the only prepared country in all the land, which, of course, pleases Pharaoh. And so he promotes Joseph to the most powerful person on the planet behind only Pharaoh himself. And so Joseph literally goes from slavery, from prison, to being above everyone in the kingdom, which would include Potiphar and his wife, which would be a bit of an awkward reunion. Then when we fast forward 10 years, Pharaoh's dream about a famine has come true. Things have gotten really bad, and people are starving everywhere. Thanks to Joseph, the only place to get food is Egypt. And so Jacob, Joseph's dad, he sends his other sons to Egypt to get some food. Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him. I assume that they think he's dead, or maybe they've just completely forgotten what he looks like. It's been quite some time. But when Joseph sees them, he is overcome with emotions and he can barely control himself. And so he puts his brothers through all of these tests to see if maybe they've changed their ways. And finally, when he just simply can't take it anymore, he says, hey, it's me. It's Joseph. You remember me? I'm dad's favorite. This is a huge moment, right? They know that Joseph is extremely powerful. The brothers have to be stressed out. Scripture says that they are dismayed. This guy that they threw in a pit, this guy that they sold into slavery is now the second most powerful man in the entire world. 
But listen to Joseph's words in Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. It says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Like just pay attention to the attitude of Joseph in these words. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. After all that Joseph has been through, Years upon years upon years of hardship. How easy it would have been for Joseph to blame his brothers and finally have the ability and the opportunity to pay them back for what they did to him. And yet he doesn't take the opportunity. Again, how would your attitude change if you believed that in all things, everything, God was with you. Joseph could truly, truly say in the darkest moments of his life, my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy and even forgiveness are spilling out of Joseph from a place of communion, from a place of satisfaction, from a place where he's been with the Lord. And then his brothers return. They go back and they get Jacob. And after all these years, the family is reunited. And yet they still think, well, maybe Joseph's going to get us now. Maybe Joseph will exact his revenge now that we're here. And again, Joseph's cup overflows in Genesis chapter 50 that Matt read for us earlier. It says, his brothers also came and fell down before him. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus Joseph comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. Somehow, somehow in the middle of an extremely chaotic life, Joseph understood the truth of Psalm 23. I think if it were possible to read this psalm to Joseph when he was in the pit or maybe when he was in prison, he would probably say something like, it does not feel like goodness and mercy are following me all the days of my life, but I know that that is true. And in time, the slow goodness of God was indeed revealed to him. And there would be no doubt in his mind that the Lord was with him. Even when he could not see it or feel it, Joseph was confident that the Lord was with him. Church, God is good. But often, His goodness comes to us more slowly than we might expect. That doesn't mean that the slow goodness of God will one day bless you and you'll become the most powerful person in the world. It doesn't mean that if you wait long enough and if you suffer well enough, then all of your dreams will come true. So please, do not hear me say that. Don't pick that up from this story. Because this story is first and foremost a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
Because goodness and mercy are complete in Jesus. You see, many years later, another son, another descendant of Abraham would walk a similar path. And like Joseph, Jesus is highly favored by the Father. And like Joseph, those closest to Jesus would betray him and abandon him. Except Jesus wouldn't be sold into slavery. He would indeed be put to death. The original plan of the brothers. And like Joseph, he would be raised up out of the pit, out of the grave, to sit on the highest of thrones where he would offer salvation to the nations around him. And like Joseph, he does not use his throne to exact revenge, but instead he forgives and he restores those who would seek him, those who have hurt him. And like Joseph, he weeps tears of joy when his family is finally reunited. You see, we see a pattern in Joseph's life that is repeated time and time again throughout Scripture. That God's righteous servants will suffer. Hard times will happen. But it is through their suffering that salvation comes to the world around them. Joseph points us to Christ. But he also shows us what it's like to live faithfully between two trees. In Joseph, we get the privilege of zooming out and seeing the slow goodness of God. In Joseph, we get to see the faith of Psalm 23 in action. And specifically, he shows us three different ways to live faithfully and to see God's goodness between two trees. So first, the first way that we get to see this is that Joseph was patient. Joseph was patient. God is always good, but sometimes his goodness is slower than we prefer. It took Joseph years, even decades, to go from being betrayed by his brothers to finally seeing his family reunited. That means there would have been years of enslavement and imprisonment. There would have been years of saying, God, this doesn't seem fair. God, what are you doing? Sometimes it's decades before you get to see that goodness and mercy have been following you. And the reality is that some of us, we won't get to see his goodness fulfilled until we are with him in paradise. Think about how long those three days must have felt between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And yet that is a picture of where we are at right now. That we wait in the in-between, patiently and eagerly anticipating Christ's second return. And so we must be patient. And then Joseph also shows us that we must trust in God's sovereignty. Joseph trusted in God's sovereignty. Joseph was absolutely certain that God was in control. Think about the sovereignty in his life, the jealousy of his brothers that led him to being sold into slavery. And out of everybody he could have been sold to, he's sold to a guy named Potiphar, the captain of the guard. Which means that when he goes to prison, it's not just normal prison, it's royal prison. 
where he just so happens to meet a cupbearer. He just so happens to meet a baker. The cupbearer, by God's providence, has a bad memory, which keeps Joseph in prison, which would seem like bad luck until you stop and think about it. If the same story would have continued in the same way, except Joseph would have been released immediately because the cupbearer had remembered him, well, it still would have been years before Pharaoh had his dream about the cows. Who knows where Joseph would be at that point? They don't have cell phones. They don't have GPS. They don't have tracking or email. Where's Joseph? Where did this guy go? I don't know. We can't find him. There's nobody there to interpret the dream, and Egypt is suffering just like all of the other nations. Even in the moments that seem small, even in the little details of your life, God's providence is at work. You see, Joseph's coat tore. His coat tore when Potiphar's wife assaulted him. What if the threads would have been stronger? What if Joseph would have escaped, coat and all? Would Potiphar have believed his wife if there was no evidence? Would his wife have even made the accusation? It might feel like I'm going overboard, but Scripture presents God as in control of everything. The wind, the rain, the lightning and where it strikes, the birds in the sky, the flowers in the field, the hairs on your head. Scripture says that God is sovereign over good kings. He's sovereign over bad kings. That he is in charge of every roll of every dice. He's in control of the outcomes of battles. He's in control of the outcome of wars and the placement of every single star in the sky, whether you can see them or not. God is in control over angels. He's in control over demons. He's in control over Satan himself. All things, big things, small things, all things are under the providence of God. And in order for us to wait on the slow goodness of God, we must first acknowledge that God is sovereign and that nothing that we are presently experiencing is outside of his eternal decree and his direct oversight. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Church, make no mistake. Your present problem or your present peace is from the Lord. And it is in the waiting, in the in-between, that we must be confident that He is in control and that He is good. Because we know, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who are called according to His purposes. And so like Joseph, like Joseph, you may feel betrayed. You may feel falsely accused. Maybe you simply feel forgotten. 
It may feel like God has mistreated you or that he has altogether abandoned you. But will you, like Joseph, be confident that the Lord is with you? That in all things, the Lord is with you. Sometimes the most difficult thing to do is to do nothing at all. Nothing except to believe on his promises and to wait upon his goodness. And so we must be patient and we must have confidence in God's sovereignty. And then lastly, Joseph ran to God, not away from God. You see, the theme in David's life and the theme in Joseph's life was that in times of trial, they did not run away from God. They ran to him. It was in prison that Joseph interpreted the cupbearer and the baker's dream that he first said, do not interpretations belong to God? Joseph never forgot about God. He pursued God even in the trial. And many times we focus on the faithfulness of God as we should. But are we being faithful to him? Do not run away from God. Run to him. Spend time in his word. Meditate on his presence. Pray without ceasing. You see, I find it amazing how often Joseph responds with peace and joy and kindness and integrity and even forgiveness for those who did him wrong. I think the only way that he can do that is because Joseph feasted upon the presence of the Lord. By that I mean he communed with the Lord daily. I think it was Seth in a recent sermon that said something along the lines of, what matters is what you ooze when you're squeezed. Is that right? What matters is what you ooze when you're squeezed. When life squeezes you, and it will squeeze you, what comes out of you is whatever is inside of you. And so if in the waiting... You are soaking in God's presence. You are spending time with Him. You are feasting at His table. Then when you are squeezed, God will come out of you. But if in the waiting, you respond with cussing, fussing, complaining, and blaming, as Tony Evans would say, then the only explanation is that what you've been feasting on is cussing, fussing, complaining, and blaming. If you nurse disbelief and anger, if you give time to self-pity and bitterness, then when life squeezes you, that is what will come out of you. If you want to respond like Joseph, then you have to feast where Joseph feasted. You must go to the Lord, even in the waiting, even in the confusion, even in the suffering. You must remember that God is good. That he is always good, even if his goodness is slower than you prefer. He will restore all things. He will fix everything that is broken. Not one single thing is wasted. Not one. All of it has meaning. So I want to close with the words of another pastor. He says, Not only is all of your affliction momentary, 
Not only is all of your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the pain in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It was not meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course, you cannot see what it's doing, but don't look to what is seen. Do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God. Preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and that you are cared for. Church, is this season of waiting difficult? Are you struggling to believe that God is good? That right now, today, in this very moment, that He is good. Have doubt and disbelief stolen your heart? Will you confess once again, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I know, I know that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are a good God. And we are so thankful for stories like Joseph's, where we get to see decades of you working. We get to see your goodness on display year after year after year. I'm thankful that you did not hide the hard parts of Joseph's life, that we get the opportunity to relate to him. We get the opportunity to understand who you are because of his life. God, if I'm being honest, sometimes it's just hard to live between two trees. It's hard to wait upon your goodness and your paradise. And so, in the waiting, we turn our eyes to Jesus. We are thankful that you did not leave us alone, that you sent our, your son to rescue us. And not only that, but when he ascended into heaven, you sent us your spirit. And that is to our advantage, Lord. We thank you for the helper. God, give us strength and give us confidence in your goodness. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.